This podcast is supported in part by an educational grant from Allergan. From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, glaucoma risk in siblings. If you are sure that you have uh, an individual in front of you who is a sibling of a glaucoma patient, you really do have to make sure that they don't have glaucoma. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Vernon declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646 808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. When you diagnose a patient with primary open-angle glaucoma, do you ask to examine family members? Should you? How far do you go? All first-degree relatives? Only siblings? Only children? Stephen Vernon has just published results of a very large study of relatives of patients with glaucoma and he's my guest today. What evidence is there that family history is a risk factor for glaucoma? Well, there are a number of different studies that have found that family history was a risk factor. Um, there was the Baltimore Eye study, which found that there was an increased risk of glaucoma in, in siblings of glaucoma patients. Um, but in, in their study, they'd only taken a, um, a history of, of uh, glaucoma in the siblings. So it wasn't actually confirmed by a doctor. And, of course, many patients might think they have glaucoma because they're on eye drops to lower their eye pressure. And sometimes they don't actually have glaucoma at all. They have what we would call treated ocular hypertension. This is a condition where the pressure in the eye is raised above the normal level, but there's no actual damage to the eye itself. So they wouldn't really be defined as as having glaucoma because only a, a percentage of people with ocular hypertension go on to get glaucoma in the future. However coming back to it, the, the Baltimore Eye study showed that there was about a, a 3.7 times chance of you having glaucoma if you have a brother or sister with glaucoma compared with if you didn't. So that was, there was that evidence to begin with. And then there's been a number of other studies, including, of course, one from myself uh, back in the late 1980s, early 90s, where we looked at um, about 115, I think it was, um, siblings of glaucoma patients and found that an incident, sorry, a prevalence of glaucoma of uh, 12.5%. And there are a number of other studies in the past that have also um, indicated that you have an increased chance of glaucoma if you have a close family member with it. These go back to the 1960s. What is the NFGSP? Um, that's the Nottingham Family Glaucoma Screening Project. And that's the study that the, the, the uh, paper is all about. For the purposes of this study, how did you define glaucoma and glaucoma suspect? A patient who's defined as definite glaucoma 
um, could, could be in two groups. Um, for the sort of primary open-angled glaucoma, we defined it as an intraocular pressure of greater than 21 millimeters of mercury and clear-cut glaucomatous optic disc changes with or without a visual field defect. Now, in fact, I've noted that in the, in the paper, we don't define how many of that group had a field defect and how many didn't. But uh, I think it's almost all of them had a field defect at presentation, and all of them went on to develop a field defect in, in the course of the, you know, the follow-up period. So effectively, the, the, the diagnosis of primary open angle glaucoma is intraocular pressure greater than 21 millimeters of mercury with glaucomatous optic disc changes and a visual field defect. And in, also in the definite glaucoma group with the normal tension glaucoma patients, so this is a, a pressure less than 22, um, with similar glaucoma optic, or glaucomatous optic disc changes and a glaucomatous visual field defect. As far as the suspects were concerned, they again fell into two groups. Ocular hypertensives, uh, as in the classical definition of ocular hypertension, uh, a patient with a, an intraocular pressure consistently above 21 millimeters of mercury, a normal optic disc and visual field, and a normal tension glaucoma suspect, where the pressure is in the normal range less than 22, but a suspicious optic disc appearance looking like glaucoma, but a normal visual field. Can I have you describe the design of this study? Yes. Um, to begin with, we recruited our probands. Uh, these were patients with um, typical high-pressure open-angle glaucoma. So they had a uh, presenting pressure of over 21 millimeters of mercury, glaucomatous optic disc change in at least one eye, and a clear-cut visual field defect. Um, and in all, we had 212 of those. They were consecutive patients to my clinic um, back in the early 1990s. So they acted as our probands. We then um, acquired permission from them to contact their brothers or sisters if they lived within a 15-mile radius of our hospital. When we contacted uh, their brothers or sisters, we invited them to attend a research clinic where they would have a full ophthalmic examination. At the ophthalmic examination, they had um, the usual uh, examination that one would have if one was a glaucoma suspect sent to our hospital. In other words, they had a visual field test they had uh, a slit lamp examination, including uh, a dilated uh, binocular examination of their optic disc. And based upon that examination and any subsequent examination that we considered necessary, they were divided into um, either being normal, having definite glaucoma, or being a suspect. That was the, fir that was the first arm of the study. In, in, in phase two of the study, we invited back for a similar examination those patients who had been normal uh, or suspect at the first examination. And obviously, not all of them attended, but a significant proportion of them did. They then went through a similar examination, um, uh, the same visual field uh, strategy that we'd used in the first examination. And they, they were also examined by um, uh, either one of two glaucoma fellows or, or a consultant ophthalmologist who defined um, their status as per the original definition. All of the probands were patients with glaucoma with elevated pressures, right? None of the yes, probands had, had normal tension. No, none of the probands had normal tension glaucoma. We were, I was particularly interested in looking at the, um, the positive rate in siblings of people with classical open-angle glaucoma rather than um, normal tension glaucoma.
we haven't done we haven't done the similar study on normal tension patients. That's something we wish to do. What were your phase one findings? Okay, well, um, following examination of the siblings in phase one, we um, we invited 333 siblings of 188 probands to come to the um, research clinic, um, and 271 attended. Um, nine of the 333 originals were already known to have glaucoma when we contacted them, and they, they didn't come and attend. Um, so that left effectively uh, 271 people attended out of 324 of the people who we invited to attend. So that's quite a high attendance rate. Of those 271, after their initial assessment, uh, 224 were defined as being normal, 15 suspect and 32 with definite glaucoma, of which there was about a 50-50 split between the uh, primary open-angle glaucoma, in other words, those with raised pressure, and the normal tension glaucoma with normal, with normal intraocular pressures. So that uh, made a, po- a positive glaucoma uh, diagnosis in 11.8% um, of, the, of the siblings. Half of the siblings with glaucoma in this study had normal tension glaucoma. That strikes me as a, as a, as a very high percentage. Yes, I suppose it does. That's true. Um, of course, uh, epidemiologically, the average intraocular pressure of somebody presenting with glaucoma to the first time is about 24 millimeters of mercury. Not that much higher than our cutoff of uh, over 21 millimeters of mercury between the primary open angle group and the normal tension group. And I suppose what it's showing is that uh, if you take uh, siblings of, of probands with high-pressure glaucoma, many of them would only have a pressure that was not that much above the upper limit of normal. And therefore, I suppose it's not surprising that a proportion of their positive siblings would have, at the first time you met them, an intraocular pressure that was within the normal range because there isn't that much difference between 21 and 24. Also, the normal tension glaucoma suspects were more prevalent than the ocular hypertensives. Yes, that's right. Um, there, were, there were nine normal tension suspects and six ocular hypertensive um, suspects. There is a possible reason for that, which I think is, in, is not in the paper, but it's important to know. And that's the, that the research clinic was always in the afternoon on the first study. So it is possible that, that there would have been more ocular hypertensives had it have been in the morning because as, as our listeners will know, uh, intraocular pressures tend to be higher in the morning than in the afternoon. That might be an explanation as to why there were relatively few ocular hypertensives in the first study. Now, presumably some of these patients who were normal tensive glaucoma suspects had physiologic cupping. Absolutely. They would, well, they would, be, they would be considered to have some features of the optic disc um, which, would, which would make them suspicious. Um, so they would tend to have large, either large or unusually shaped cups. What were your phase two findings? Phase two, as far as time is concerned, is an average of seven years after phase one uh, per, sub, per suspect. Um, we, as I said before, we invited back the patients who, or the people who were normal or suspects. We, we ended up with um, 157 uh, siblings attending for phase two. Um, of 106 probands. As far as the the findings were concerned, 11 of these 157 had definite glaucoma, um, 30 were suspect, and 116 uh, were normal, and there were were, um, 
there were a few that were unable to complete the examination. But that effectively meant that we had 7% um, had converted from being normal to um, definite glaucoma over the seven years, so that's 1% per year. And in addition, uh, a further 19.1% were, were now defined as suspect, of which 12 were normal tension suspects and 18 ocular hypertensives. So in this, this time, there were more ocular hypertensives than there were normal tension glaucoma suspects. And if my memory serves me rightly, most of the research clinics for phase two were actually in the morning rather than the afternoon. What risk factors were identified for conversion to glaucoma? Well, this was very interesting because um, we, we examined the obvious risk factors for glaucoma if they were present in the first at the first screening in, the, in those that then turned out to have glaucoma in the second screening. And we found that, in fact, there weren't any risk factors at all. So you couldn't predict from the first screening which of the, those identified as being normal were going to go on and develop glaucoma over a seven-year period. It is very surprising indeed because you'd be expecting people to be gradually developing glaucoma, but perhaps it's because of the, of the time period between the two examinations, i.e. seven years. If we'd followed the siblings every two years, perhaps it would have been, well, I'm sure it would have been obvious which ones were, were changing and developing into glaucoma during that time period. But if you divide the two examinations by a larger time period, then you can't predict which ones are going to get glaucoma. This is important because it means that you've got to really, if you're going to try and identify these people, you've got to screen them regularly for glaucoma. You can't pick out an at-risk group from your single screening uh, to then follow up later to make sure that you've, you've got all the people who convert. What is the lifetime risk for a sibling of a proban with glaucoma? Well, when, when we added all the figures up and did the calculations, we found that the lifetime risk is approximately 20% at age 70. Going back well, perhaps one stage, it's worth pointing out that the, if you uh, have a brother or sister with glaucoma, then your incidence of developing glaucoma during your, uh, the age between sort of 63 and 70 is 10 times that of somebody who doesn't have a, a sibling with glaucoma. That's 10 times that found in the Australian study, the Melbourne Visual Impairment Project, and four times a recent Swedish study. <clears throat> Similarly, your chance of being considered as a glaucoma suspect is seven times greater than, than uh, the average population. So to reiterate, really, the, the, the lifetime risk of glaucoma is, is about 20% by age 70, which is about five times that of, of the general population. How do your findings compare with those of other studies, like the Baltimore Eye Study or the Rotterdam Study? As far as the Baltimore Eye, Eye Study is concerned, their, their odds ratio for developing glaucoma in a sibling was, was about um, well, 3.7, whereas uh, our, our calculated odds ratio would, would be about 10 um, if, if we compare our population as being similar to, to a population in Australia which it probably is. We don't have um, an, a, a, an exact prevalence of glaucoma in our Nottingham population, I'm afraid, because we haven't done the same sort of study as they had in the Baltimore eye study. Um, so we have to really compare with similar populations. And the nearest one we're likely to get is either the Swedish uh, study um, or, the, uh, or the Baltimore study. 
the the Baltimore Eye Study also looked at other first degree relatives other than siblings, right? Yes, they did. I mean, um, they they also um, worked out the odds ratio for parents and children as well. If you, you are a parent of somebody with um, glaucoma, then you've got about a, a double the risk of glaucoma uh, uh, as if you hadn't got a, a, a child with glaucoma, which is not not that not as great as the sibling risk, of course. And for children, in other words, um, if you're a child of a patient with glaucoma, the risk that they worked out was was very much similar to the risk if you hadn't got a parent with glaucoma. Um, but of course, the, the prevalence of glaucoma in that age group would be much less because on average, children are at least 20 years younger than their parents. So one would sort of expect that. And as far as I'm aware, nobody's really um, looked at the true uh, incidence of glaucoma in uh, children of people with glaucoma as they get older. Because what you need to do is add on at least you know, 20 to 25 years uh, in, into the future. So I think that's a study that hasn't been done yet. Why do you think that the risk is so much higher for siblings than for other first-degree relatives of patients with glaucoma? Well, the natural thing to think about is the genetic transmission uh, of glaucoma in, in, or the, the commonest genetic transmission. And we, we know that there are dominant glaucoma genes that, that can be found in, in, in glaucoma families where you can, you, can, you can map the glaucoma very clearly down through the generations in a dominant fashion. But that actually probably accounts for a relatively small number of the total number of people with glaucoma and also probably those that, that, that present much, much younger than, than, than the patients in our study. So it's more likely that, um, that, that if, the, if, it, if it is a single gene, that it's acting in an autosomal recessive way. Uh, that would explain why you're more likely to have it if you have a brother or a sister with it because um, effectively you should have one, one in four chance of, of, of being homozygous for the gene. And our figure of 20% by age 70 is not far off the, the expected 25% that you, that you would expect if the, if the condition was mainly autosomal recessive. Plus, you make the point that siblings tend to be similar in age, whereas parents and children necessarily aren't. Yes, of course. That's right. But you'd expect, if, you'd expect a greater incidence in parents um, because they're going to be older than the, the pro-band, whereas there doesn't appear to be, at least from the Baltimore Eye study, unless, of course, there's um, doubt about <laughs> parentage, I suppose, which is always possible. Um, but then there would also be doubt about siblings, as, as whether, they were, whether they were full brothers and sisters. Um, in fact, we had to exclude, um, I think it was two patients um, of our sibling group because we found out there were really only half um, brothers and sisters rather than rather than full brothers and sisters. But even so, you would still expect there to be a much higher incidence in, in parents because they're 20 years older, at least, than, than the pro-bands. And that wasn't the case from the, from the Baltimore Eye Study. So I think that rather, rather puts the... Um, it's very likely that this is an autosomal recessive sort of genetic inheritance. Does this population have a greater risk of conversion from ocular hypertension than other ocular hypertensives? Um, I don't know. We don't know the answer to that. We don't have enough patients to be able to to hazard a guess about that at all. Um, I mean, the, not as you probably know, the conversion rate from ocular hypertension to glaucoma varies depending upon the intraocular pressure the central corneal thickness, 
uh, and the Cubitus ratio as shown in the ocular hypertension treatment study. Um, but on average, only about 10% of ocular hypertensives are going to convert to glaucoma in 20 years. So that's considerably less in seven years. Let's say, what, about 3%, 3.3% convert. And because we have a relatively small number of ocular hypertensives in our siblings, we just couldn't estimate that, I'm afraid. You'd need a much, much bigger study to answer that one. Why do you think that siblings are more vulnerable? Do, do you think it's that they have a, a, a tendency for higher intraocular pressure or that they have more vulnerable optic nerves? Um, it could be either, but it's, it is probably um, the vulnerable nerve story, I think. Um, otherwise, they would, have, uh, they would have sort of typical high-pressure glaucoma, and, and they haven't. So I think there's definitely an inherited susceptibility of your optic nerve head to glaucomatous damage. And that's, that's what we're showing here in, in a, 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 probably quite a sizable population. Um, because even a number of, the, of the, the sort of primary open angle patients did not have pressures that, that were that much greater than 21. Um, if you look at the, um, the average intraocular pressure in, in the definite glaucomas, then in, in, in the first screening study, it was only 18.4, which is only three millimeters of 0.4 millimeters of mercury above those who were defined as normal. So I think it's definitely uh, a susceptibility to, to damage that we're looking at here. And it's probably a, a sort of double hit. If you have a, a slightly higher intraocular pressure and you're susceptible as well, then you're going to get the damage eventually. Now, there, there's a lot that happened uh, in terms of the development of diagnostic techniques for glaucoma in the seven years between phase one and phase two. To, to what extent do you think that the increased prevalence of glaucoma over time between phase one and, and phase two is attributable to better diagnostic techniques? Well, we deliberately used the same um, diagnostic criteria and the same techniques in both of these studies. Um, we used the same examination techniques in that we used the 78-delta lens for a stereoscopic view of the disc. We used the same visual field program, and we didn't base any diagnosis on, uh, on more sophisticated imaging techniques, although we do have them. That was deliberate so that, so that it, was, it was as though we were standing still in time between the two studies. In fact, we did... Um, we did perform uh, Heidelberg retinal tomographic scanning on the phase two uh, siblings, but that's not reported in this study. And that's something I can't really talk about in any more detail at the moment. What do you advocate for clinicians? I think that, that there are a few take-home messages from this study. And that is that if you, if you are sure that, you're, that you have uh, an individual in front of you who is a sibling of, uh, of a glaucoma patient, you really do have to make sure that they don't have glaucoma. It's almost you have to exclude glaucoma rather than identify it because the likelihood that they, have, that they will have glaucoma in their lifetime is, is, is pretty high. Um, as far as identifying patients with glaucoma is, is concerned, then screening a high-risk group such as siblings is going to, is going to be very cost-effective um, as, as, as identifying new glaucoma individuals. Um, because you can't predict which people are going to convert to glaucoma from a previous examination, certainly by traditional methods, um, you're going to have to screen them regularly uh, to identify the disease at an, early pre at an early time. 
And given the 1% per year conversion rate, it's probably justifiable to screen them every two years over the age of 50. In fact, we found very few of our um, siblings below 50 have, in fact, none had glaucoma in the first screening study. And I think only one of the under 50s had glaucoma in the, in the, second, um, in the second screening study. So it, it probably isn't worth doing it uh, below 50 unless you have a dom known dominant inheritance. If you, if you don't have a known dominant inheritance, it's, it's after you've examined them for the first time, you can probably leave it until they're 50 and then, and then screen every two years. Stephen, what do you do in your own practice? Well, of course, I practice in the UK, which is very different from your, most of your audience, which I imagine are coming from the United States, because we have a national health service in the UK. And we have a, a glaucoma detection service that runs through our community optometrists um, who can perform visual field tests, test intraocular pressure, and examine the back of the eye in one way or another. Uh, we are yet to develop a full screening um, service for any group of individuals that, that's run by the National Health. And that's one of the things I hope that, that our research is going to change. And in fact, our, our national um, screening committee is now considering glaucoma uh, as a condition to screen for and, and uh, they obviously have access to our research. So in the UK it is different. Um, so if let's say that I see um, a patient who, who I know is a sibling of a, uh, of a glaucoma patient and I think they have and I know they haven't got glaucoma when I see them then I, then I, I do advise them that they should be looked at every two years very carefully by uh, a community optometrist. And if there's any doubt at all, then they should be referred back to uh, the hospital eye service, which is the service in which I work. That's the National Health Hospital Eye Service. I think what, was, what, what perhaps we didn't discuss was the, the interesting finding that, that relates to what I've just said, really, about the community case detection service. I deliberately haven't used screening here. Um, because if people go to our community optometrists, you know, to have their eyes tested, then um, they get an eye, they get an eyesight test for glasses or contact lenses, and they sh they also should get an examination to exclude disease. As you'll see from Figure Two in the paper, um, in the first screening study, we asked all patients when, or sorry, all siblings, when they had last visited their community optometrist, and so we got. The, the timings for when those who were diagnosed as definite glaucoma had last seen their community optometrist. And as you'll see from, from the, uh, the figure, half of them had seen their community optometrist within the last year. Now, I suppose it's theoretically possible that they converted from normal to definite glaucoma within that time period, but one would feel it would be unlikely that all of them would have. Um, and therefore, the inference from that is that um, the community optometric case detection service in the UK is not as efficient as it might be because these people knew they had a brother or sister with glaucoma because on average the proband had been diagnosed as having glaucoma over four years uh, before we screened their siblings. Now to, to, in, in Great Britain that's an important factor because what it's telling you is that you, you at least in the mid-1990s community optometrists were not as efficient as they may be at detecting glaucoma in the high-risk group.
which means that, that they either need more training to be able to do it more efficiently, or if you were to have a screening service, it needs to, it needs to be performed perhaps by ophthalmologists rather than optometrists. In the UK, of course, people have to decide themselves to go and be tested. Um, they're, not, uh, they're not reminded to be tested. Um, it, it's purely on a, on a, a fortuitous basis if they, if they attend their community optometrist and their community optometrist picks them up as having an abnormality. One of the things that are the, the paper we've been discussing, it, it really does highlight um, the, the possibility of an effective screening program for a high-risk group. Now, there are other high-risk groups as well, and one of the things we didn't mention uh, in our discussions that were that all of the siblings were, were white people. We had no Afro-Caribbean or Asian uh, siblings in this particular study. So it's very different from the, the population that one might see in America, um, where obviously there's a quite a high Afro-Caribbean element, and, and the Barbados study similarly. So this, that's why our population is very much more similar to, to the Australian Melbourne study. Stephen Vernon, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I look forward to, to hearing the, the end result. Stephen Vernon is a consultant ophthalmologist and glaucoma specialist at the Eye, Ear, Nose, and Throat Center of the Queen's Medical Center University Hospital in Nottingham, England. His paper, Longitudinal Glaucoma Screening, for siblings of patients with primary open-angle glaucoma, the Nottingham Family Glaucoma Screening Study, appears in the January 2006 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Vernon or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.